This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. And now we turn to Kieran Healy of Duke University. Kieran authored the award-winning Last Best Gifts, Altruism and the Market for Human Blood and Organs with Princeton University Press. More, oh, wait, it was Harvard, wasn't it? Chicago. <laughs> ah, damn it. Oh, for two. And who, wait, who, who, what's the title of your book coming up? That's called Data Visualization, A Practical Introduction. And that, that and Princeton, is, Princeton is doing that one. All right. Yeah, over oh, two. More recently, Kieran made waves with an excellent theory paper in sociological theory called uh, Warning, <laughs> a Trigger Warning, <laughs> Fuck Nuance. He's uh, he's a great sociologist. We're thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Kieran. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Kieran, let's start out with fuck nuance. We have to start out with fuck nuance. Can you give us some background <laughs> on the paper? And for those of us who haven't read it, tell us what it's, what it's about. Uh, well, I've told the story uh, before. The this it's Steve Vasey's fault, as with you know many things around here in North Carolina, it's Steve Vasey's fault. Um, Steve wanted to organize a panel at the ASA um, about really against the idea of nuance in sociological theory and how there seemed to be a lot of it around. And he asked me if I would be interested in submitting a paper um, called something like "Against Nuance." Um, and uh, and I said, well, if you're going to do that, you might as well just you know bite the bullet. Uh, and uh, and really go for it, um, and and he also I think that he one of the things that sort of pushed it over the edge was that he uh, he asked the organizer I think it was Andy Perrin who was the chair at the time um, he wanted to call the session against nuance um, but Andy said well I think you should call it you know the promise and pitfalls of nuance <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said Steve you mean he asked you to make it more nuanced so I took the case for the prosecution um on that and the and the paper so it's got the title and uh, all the rest of it which which steve bound me to um <laughs> but there's a real argument there that i believe uh and uh, wait can you tell us the original abstract <laughs> Uh, it was the original abstract just said seriously fuck it. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> but it's a great paper uh, it's a great paper and the title yeah. should not detract from the uh, really important argument you made in it yeah, and so the the idea is that um, well, empirically, there's this huge spike over the last 25 years uh, in sociology, but not just there on the use of this term, uh, nuance or nuanced, all pretty much without exception, people calling for more of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really um, antithetical to the project of social theory, uh, which is a difficult thing to do, uh, but is that is fundamentally about abstraction. And in the paper, I kind of you know make this argument that doing theory is is about throwing away specificity in order to create a bit of generalization, uh, in order to abstract, you have to ignore what, how things differ and focus on the things they have in common. And, uh, and the paper then outlines sort of three nuance traps that people fall into instead. One of the, the empirical fine grain, just constantly piling on more detail. One of the conceptual scheme, just, uh, making your ideas, um, irrefutable through further and further distinction making within your own little system. Uh, so you lose touch with the phenomenon altogether. And, uh, and then third, the nuance of the connoisseur, which is the sort of quite common experience, I think within sociology of people just, um, 
taking the stance that they're very sophisticated with the thinker and uh, and and they have a better sense of the the nature and flow of social reality itself and uh, and, that, and that's a way of and that move is always available to people and um, and so they take it and so in, instead I suggest that um, on grounds of kind of principle style and practical effect uh, we should avoid that thing uh, certainly within sociology we should avoid it uh, it's not an unmitigated good right it's not I'm not suggesting that you know we should be uh, the argument isn't stupid, uh, and uh, and the and, and it's not that you should just uh, be as maximally simple as possible. But it is that in our current context, we really seem to be glutted with this move for various reasons. I guess that we could talk about, um, and uh, and we should have a little less of it. I think I, I I read it as the the call for nuance is almost a rhetorical device or an argumentative device that uh, isn't even that focused on the construction of more and better theory or better theories, but it's more like uh, scoring points in an argument or uh, looking good. Why, wh- what's your interpretation of the, the pull of nuance, both why did it take off and why do people love call asking for nuance or demanding nuance? Well, I think there's an internal and an external way of looking at it. Internally, within the context of an argument, just in, in general, you can think of the, the appeal of, you know, suggesting that something is more complicated than that. Or uh, saying that, well, I think we should add more detail or we need to uh, – you're missing a dimension here. These are standard moves and often quite valid moves in, in arguments, right? And, and, and so it's understandable that people would seek to make them. And, and in that sense, the, the suggestion that uh, you know, something needs to be refined or looked into more closely – uh, or what have you is, is is quite an understandable move. The real question is the is the external one, which is why is it that that move in particular would consistently take hold and expand in its prevalence uh, when the alternative moves? You know, we think of we think of there should be returns in um, in social science, but also just in, in in general, you know, in intellectual life, there should be there should be strong positive returns to uh, generalization and abstraction, mm-hmm. right? We think of formal methods uh, or modeling or or just general arguments as being quite powerful, right? That's what we want to make. And so it's striking that in the last 25 years, uh, there seems to have been this shift that at least in some uh, of the social sciences, um, it's it, that people aren't in a position to make those kind of moves anymore. And so that leads to the external question of, you know, what is happening in the social sciences that's preventing us from... Um, that's pushing us in this direction of uh, of nuance, and uh, I know Gabe and I have talked about this um, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, in, in semi publicly, I guess that the it, it's it's just very suggestive that you know when you have a large influx of people into fields and. Uh, you don't have, as in sociology, we don't have a, a real methodological core mm. um, that everybody is trained in that we can agree on what counts as a high-quality argument um, and what the steps you should take in that direction you know, are, then um, adding empirical detail is something that everybody can do. Adding nuance or adding complexity when you're writing your dissertation is a move that's available to everyone and it's within reach if you want to finish your dissertation or if you want to make a, uh, if you want to make a, a contribution, then it's much easier to do that. And, and particularly, it's much easier to do that when you have loads and loads of other people also working you know, in, uh, in related or cl- you know, close by. Um, it's much easier to sort of in my view, fall back on the move of saying, well, here's a little more detail or here's an extra wrinkle or here's, uh, you know, a, a little uh, added shade of meaning. And um, and so we get more and more nuance and everybody becomes kind of um, less and less satisfied with the results, I think. How much of this do you feel is people themselves just like 
thinking, oh, I, I need nuance. And how much of it do you feel is the uh, peer review process that if you're a reviewer and you feel like you don't really have anything to mm-hmm. say, that one thing you can always say is either, oh, this needs more nuance, or you could say, oh, but did you think about how it applies you know, under contingency? Yeah, X. I blame the and, internet like, and reviewers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always a good, uh, right? I mean, if you start with... Uh, Internet reviewers and original sin that's going to cover all the bases. Uh, so, but like, you know, Marvin oh, Bresler, oh, yeah. mentioned today, used to always say, uh, right. and those of you who are not Princeton PhDs, you should just know that he was this uh, emeritus professor who used to hang out around the Department of Music, the mm-hmm. grad students. Um, he used to always say that there's only two questions that ever get asked at a talk. Number one, but is it really so simple? And number two, yeah. but is it really so complicated? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, nuance is really just another instance of, but is it really so simple? You know, and a lot of reviewers don't like the idea of, oh, but is it really so simple? And I've definitely had peer reviews like that, like, uh, including hilariously in a, in a computer simulation where I was just trying to say, look, this is how density dependence works. And then the reviewer's like, yes, but what if the density dependence works this way? Or what if the de- density dependence works that way? And I'm like, it's all density dependence. It doesn't matter, you know? The same process or the same underlying process could be there on the on the reviewing side as well, right? The question, because the question is, why is it that this is, you know, why do reviewers ask for this? There's no intrinsic reason that they would make the, isn't it more complicated than that move instead of the, isn't it simpler than that move? And, and for me, the issue is, I think the more I think about this question, the, the more, you know, it's tempting to sort of point to the hollowing out of, of theory as a, a co- as a sort of coherent, uh, shared project within American sociology since essentially Merton, uh, I, I would say, since the 1960s. Uh, and um, the fragmentation of, of social theory, it, you know, the Parsonian project blows up in the 1960s. Um, Merton falls, holds, holds the ground for a little bit with, with middle range approaches, but then you get this huge fragmentation and you have everything from ethnomethodology to network analysis to gender theory uh, to uh, critical race theory. You get this huge um, you know, heterogeneity of approaches, all essentially incompatible, uh, and each trying and failing, I think, to uh, sort of replace the what had previously come before. And instead of uh, taking over uh, any one of them winning and establishing its particular vision and method, and particularly its method for um, evaluating what theory should be, instead you get sort of these, these little um, islands or fragments um, uh, going along. And, and at that point, uh, then what happens is in the review process, for example, or in the literature review phase, or in the making your own argument phase, well, now you have theory becomes not um, a, a world where there's a shared model, uh, not necessarily a formal model, but like a shared a shared approach, uh, and for for making an argument, but instead. Um, all of these kind of uh, floating islands that never quite properly compete with each other, and the the, the hapless uh, you know graduate student or the poor assistant professor uh, starting out is forced uh, to sort of mm. account for all of them. Yeah, and and it's and I think and I think that process is exacerbated too by the because you know it's it it, it piles in on itself because our most of our um, insofar as we have formal methods like quantitative methods they for a long time they lent themselves to just well just add more variables yeah. and uh, and each one of which can stand for you know weekly some one of these theories uh, and um, and so the result is this kind of hodgepodge where uh, you don't have um, you don't you don't get the opportunity to reestablish the but isn't it simpler than that um, 
part of the dialectic and and we spiral off into uh into isn't it always more complicated than that do you think analytical sociology has the potential to you know bring in a isn't it simpler than that mentality well i think that any of these to be honest i think that almost any of these approaches in principle have the um the potential to become uh uh to, to, to push that forward, it's more a question of whether any of them are likely as a matter of kind of a, um, a disciplinary fact uh, to become a sustained focus of attention um, in terms of intellectual development with, ev- with everybody agreeing to sort of, well, we need to work on this set of mm-hmm. problems using these methods, like approaching it in this particular way with this style of evaluation. And, and so while I think something like analytical sociology has the, you know, it has the, the desire to pushback in the direction of things being simpler with a, a coherent vocabulary that people share. I don't, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's going to have just as a matter of um, disciplinary uh, influence. I, I'm skeptical that it's going to have the, uh, uh, the, the, that actual impact in practice. And the, um, and the reason for that again, is that, um, you know, our, you can just look at what's happening in graduate training in departments. We, we don't, um, you know, theory is dead essentially yeah. in mm-hmm. as, as a, as a, as a graduate training um, as a focus of graduate training and as an occupational, um, as, as an occupational niche within the field. And, um, we, it, 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 it died in the, in the eighties pretty much, uh, or early 1990s. And we're starting to pay the price now, I think, um, it, in, in terms of, uh, a slide, I think towards, you know, all of the tendencies that we see all the time. And so the balkanization, uh, a lack of shared standards of inquiry. And I, I speak at this, like, you know, this isn't like a moral critique. It's just kind of as it's one of the things that makes it harder for the discipline to hold together. And so within any given pocket, mm-hmm. uh, within any given subfield, you, you can have these sort of standards will start to sort of reassert themselves as people say, okay, well, here we are now in demography, or here we are now in, uh, you know, in, in gender theory, or here we are in, um, uh, in, you know, health and social behavior or something. And we, we know what our debates are within this field and we can, We'll we'll have them according to those standards, but the uh, the, the sort of disciplinary core or, and the promise of uh, of, it, of of more general theory kind of fades. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I have a so on a more practical level, if you're an assistant professor, if you're a graduate student, and you feel like what, you feel like you're being confronted with demands for nuance, where you feel they're not warranted, like how does someone navigate that practically? When how can we differentiate? Yeah. Uh, cite, you, 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 you cite, cite my paper. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I, I've done that. I have a, uh, I have a paper, another paper using a simulation, and I already cite your paper to you know make the point that simulations have to be parsimonious because every once in a while you get a reviewer who doesn't understand that's the point. They think that you're you know you're not yeah. making a very simple simulation. They basically expect you to make GTA five and write a paper about it. Uh, but, you know. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm joking mostly. You should sit at the paper. Uh, but, but uh, you know, you need, you, need to have, you need to have some sort of, you know, basis for, uh, for, for pushing back. And that's one of them to have. Because one of the things that happened when I wrote this paper is that um, when it got published, uh, there really was this sort of element of, it was almost like a sort of pluralistic ignorance moment where, yeah. uh, you know, it's not, of course, not everybody liked the paper, and, and, and I wouldn't expect everybody to by any means. Uh, and if everybody liked it, it would that it would be a sign that something was wrong. Mm. But there was this big rush of people going, "Oh yeah, you know that's really true." Or I've had I've been in this ex- uh, set, you know, I've had this experience, or this is this is something that happened, and I'm glad that you you know that someone is there, kind of just staking that the alternative out. Mm. Um, so 
it's hard for individuals at the level of reviews on a particular paper to fight these broader forces mm. and they really think, you know, they shouldn't have to. And the best you can do is try to make the cleanest argument that you can, you know, that's consistent with the data or the point that you want to, yeah. want to make. In copy um, editing, if, if I, necessary. I have passively uh, taken yeah. uh, citations out that I feel are valueless, which reviewers have. Yeah. And so, so that is a matter of you know, cultivating style and it's hard, it's hard to fight. And then editors have a responsibility to, you know, not to lead uh, people down that, um, down that path. I mean, I think the journal editors in sociology are unusually yes. powerful precisely because we tend to lack uh, shared disciplinary standards mm -hmm. for evaluating quality. That's the reason, for instance, that um, the hierarchy of journals is more important than the hierarchy mm -hmm. of departments within uh, within sociology. And because everybody can agree in a fairly heterogeneous field that getting published in ASR or AJS is, you know, that's something we can sort of intersubjectively agree on as a mark of quality, even if we disagree with the with the methods or approaches. Um, and if we agreed more, um, again, this isn't like a, you know, a normative point. It's just where, you know, at, at what point does the status order, where, where does it exist? You know, where does it bite? Um, and, in, and in social bites at the level of um, getting into journals, even though many people disagree with your whole approach or something and but you have to agree that it's good and so that means the journal editors then are very powerful uh and the, the standards that they uh demand um w can really change the way their field is working so if we could go back a second to talking about uh you know this kind of structure of the discipline and how it affects it i i totally agree with you that we have um a weak paradigm field and this makes it hard to agree on kind of a coherent worldview. And if we have more, you know, monocausal explanations or whatever, um, or at least a, a single idea, it would make it easier to have uh, less of a focus on nuance. And you know, this is especially the case of the top journals where they explicitly say you have to speak to multiple areas of discipline, et cetera, et cetera. But I also feel that there's some mm -hmm. part, some theories, some traditions that are more amenable to nuance than others. And, you know, you mentioned like critical race theory and ethnomethodology, uh, to me, those are uh, theoretical perspectives that are opposed to um, parsimony in principle. Uh, ethnomethodology is all about how everything that's worth having comes out of the details of interaction. Uh, one step over from that, you have thick description, which is basically to say, you know, we don't, it should be 100% nuance. There should be nothing but the nuance. There should be no theory at all, just nuance. And then um, you have various types of critical theory uh are very interested in intersectionality, which is basically a fancy way of saying we're, we're interested in the contingencies of, you know, we don't want to know how race works and we don't want to know how gender works. We want to know how race works together with gender, which is implicitly saying we demand nuance. <laughs> there's something, there's, there's something to that. Although I, I also think that sort of conditions out in the world um, will have a lot of impact on the content of theory within a field. So for example, uh, one of the things that I did when I was, when I was get, you know, prepping this paper in order to give um, some evidence that nuance really was on the rise uh, in across many fields and, and within sociology was to look at uh, trends in the use of the word by journal, mm -hmm. right? Including both in the generalist journals, which is in the paper, but also in a bunch of specialty journals. And there's one very suggestive trend. It's mostly going up in mm -hmm. many places. Um, and one place where it's gone off the edge of a cliff in the last you know decade or so is in gender and society. Now, that could be a complete coincidence, right? Uh, and I'm not suggesting that. But, but uh, it's also tempting to think that, you know, that gender theory, um, which you might think of as you know, as you were saying, is one of these fields 
that was very focused on you know nuance, uh, uh, the yeah. fine grain, and all the rest of it in in the eighties and nineties. Um, I think that the transformation uh, in the world of, on things like um, debates about trans identities or uh, or or um, you know same sex marriage, all that kind of things, um, has really revitalized that field mm. theoretically, uh, and uh, and much more interesting things are happening in it now. If you ask me, as and I'm not a specialist in these in these areas or anything, but you know, it seems to me that there's more going on intellectually in that field in the last decade or so than there was maybe in the ten or fifteen years before that, and it's it's tempting, you know, to to see that as linked to you know the decline in the use of nuance. Right now, something is happening out in the world, and it demands a much sharper theory. And um, you know, and I wonder if we would see the same with critical race stuff, you know, in the wake of Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter or similar kinds of moves that suddenly, you know, even if the vocabulary didn't change that much, that uh, the emphasis would be in, in term, you know, in the direction of much sharper uh, and uh, and less nuanced arguments. I think it works the other way around too, right? I mean, so I actually think you have movements like, for example, Black Lives Matter that takes on, right, you know, that uses, um, you know, the literature that talks about intersectionality, for example, right, as, you know, sort of, you know, like part of their calling card, part of who they are. And I actually think um, thinking about intersectionality, like across disciplines and, and its use, I think that also helps to explain a lot of, a lot of the things that, that you might, that you might tag as, you know, I was like, here's the rise of nuance here. I think that's a very important point. And one of the things I say towards the end of the paper is that it's important to bear in mind that many concepts there's a relational quality to how nuanced they appear. Uh, and so something like intersectionality, for example, um, depending on the audience that it's being presented to and the context in, in which that's being presented, it can appear you know, more or less interesting or more or less compelling. Um, and so if you, you know, it's been established, say, within the social sciences for a long time, but if you take it out into a more political context, then it can, it can reacquire its cutting edge and, and be you know, uh, used as a in in a much in a much sharper way whereas if you uh if if you're a if you're a critical race theorist uh, and you're presenting to an audience of sociologists and your point is i'm going to show you how this you know outcome is intersectional they're less likely to be interested because they already believe that to be true uh and uh and so so, you know the again it's not it's, it's not necessarily you know, the concept itself can can change uh, how, how you know how abstract it seems or how how, how sharp it seems depending on uh, who it's being uh, used you know with respect to. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Liseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>